1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels and do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when, com when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Given to that question, aren't there? And I went trawling for some of them this week. Here are some answers that were given by a group of children who were asked, what is love? One of them said, I think love is when you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something. But it's okay, because the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. Another child said, love is when a woman puts on perfume and a man puts on aftershave and they go out together and smell each other. And a third one said, I let my big sister pick on me because my mum says she only does it because she loves me, really. So I pick on my little sister because I love her. Well, what, what would you say? I mean, you don't have to, to call them out, but if you'd like to, maybe a few people could, could, could tell us what they put on their heart. Anyone want to, to shout out and answer that question? We've got another Jesus. I'm not going to argue with Jesus is the answer. Love is safe, unconditional. I didn't hear the other one, sorry. Everything. Family. I mean, none of these are wrong answers, are there? There are many things we could put. Long things and short things. Our reading today, it's one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, I think, really, isn't it? Full stop. Not just chapters about love. By far the most common choice of Bible reading at weddings, in my experience. It's popular with people who follow Jesus popular with people who don't follow Jesus when it comes to weddings as well. And I have to say, I've sometimes wondered 
what people in the congregation at weddings make of this passage when they hear it read. And it says things like the tongues of men and angels and the gift of prophecy and all mysteries and all knowledge. I suspect most people who come to a wedding and hear that reading probably don't have too much idea about what prompted St. Paul to write these words about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because that's the context we need to keep in mind when we read this chapter, uh, this great passage. And you'll know that if you've been in our evening services um, for the last couple of ones. Uh, the motivation for this little mini-series, well, there are various things, really. One is um, was the request from several people to do some thinking about this particular area. Um, another is that it seemed like the right time of year to do it, between Easter and Pentecost, uh, when we mark the gift of the Spirit to the church. Um, but also, I just think these are important chapters for us as a church. They have something to say to us uh, when we sometimes feel small and fragile, uh, when we are perhaps confused by stuff in the wider church, um, whether that's in our diocese or whether it's nationally, um, whether it's some um, things we hear about leaders in the church, or whether it's when we're just troubled by stuff in the news and things happening in God's world. Uh, in chapters 12 to 14 of this first of his letters to the Corinthians, Paul deals with the whole issue of the use of spiritual gifts in church. Clearly, that was a big issue in Corinth, uh, where some serious correction was needed. Um, if you were here for the last couple of services, don't worry if you weren't. Chapter 12, if you like, gives us a kind of general introduction to that topic, uh, a bit of theological uh, foundation, if you like, for us. That in Christ, if you remember, we form the parts of one body, uh, which we heard about a couple of weeks ago. Now, having laid this foundation, the stage is set, so we might think, to get to the, to the nitty-gritty. Some specific application, some practicalities about how the use of spiritual gifts should or should not be practiced in church. But, before he does that, and Paul will get to that in chapter 14, you're going to have to come back next week, he wants to ensure that the motive for everything we do, not just practicing spiritual gifts, is rightly focused. Spiritual gifts are wonderful, but as he says in those words just before where Judith started reading from at the end of chapter 12, there is a more excellent way. And this chapter 13 gets to the heart of what is behind his teaching about the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul have to say? Um, in a nutshell, the motivation for using the gifts of the Spirit needs to be Jesus-shaped love. So yes, of course the answer is Jesus. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Our motivation for using gifts of the Spirit needs to be Jesus-shaped love. Um, here are four things for us to think about. The first one is this. Um, love must be the priority over all other considerations. Um, in verse 1, it seems that some of the Corinthians thought of speaking in languages or tongues. Same word. I know our Bible's most modern translations translate it tongues, don't they? But it's the same word, and in many ways languages is a better word to use because tongues is kind of old-fashioned. It sounds a little bit spooky and weird, doesn't it? We don't often speak of learning a new tongue. Um, so languages will do. Either will do fine. Paul says, whatever those languages might be, whether they're human or the languages of angels, it's just noise without love. Then in verse 2, he speaks to those who revel in prophecy, insight, knowledge, and miraculous amounts of faith. 
And Paul sees them all as nothing without love. And then in verse 3, he addresses those who perhaps emphasize the more sacrificial gifts, giving up your possessions, your comforts, even your life, all worthless, he says, without love. Love is the starting point, a priority. All right, fair enough. All of this begs the question a bit, though, doesn't it? It's back to where we started. What do we mean by love? How do we complete that sentence? And yes, I want to say, because Paul wants to point us in this direction, that our starting point is to say that love is all about Jesus. Now, the main way that the word love is used in our culture these days is romantically, isn't it? Or sometimes erotically. Love songs, being in love. Love Island, for goodness sake. If you put love as a Google Images search, what do you think comes up? Try it if you like. I did it this week. It won't surprise you. Hearts. I've embraced it in the slide, haven't I? Lots of hearts. Sunsets. Couples holding hands, sometimes kissing, usually in silhouette and soft focus. Did I mention hearts? The focus is kind of on intense feelings, isn't it? Feelings of affection, of attraction, primarily in some sort of romantic or even sexual way. You don't find many pictures when you Google it like that, for example, of parents and children. You don't get many pictures, as far as I can see, of people who are friends. Certainly, I didn't spot any pictures of Jesus on the cross under that Google image search. The 2023 version of love is more sentimental and sexy than steadfast and sacrificial. And we need to be aware of that because love is a loaded word when we use it, isn't it? And Paul does not want us to misunderstand its meaning. And he certainly doesn't want us to end up with just some kind of vague, mushy feelings or an attraction-based definition of love. And so he tells us exactly what love is. And we get to the heart of the passage, don't we, in verses 4 to 7. Have a look at it. Fifteen qualities of love. And as we read these familiar words, we mustn't miss the fact that what Paul is saying here is not some kind of theory. It's not his kind of abstract description of what love is. He is describing a person. Do you think of all the accounts you can of what Jesus was like in the Gospels, what he said, what he did, what happened. Verses 4 to 7 are a description of Jesus and the life he lived, the person he is. When I read these verses at a wedding, I quite often make that point, uh, that none of us, none of us can live up to that description completely, can we, in verses 4 to 7, even though we might well aspire to it, and it would be a good thing to do. And it's sometimes worth pointing out to the bride and groom that even though they may not be able to believe it on their wedding day, their new spouse is not going to completely fulfill all their aspirations for being someone who loves. But Jesus does. And he's the model behind uh, all of these things that Paul gives us here. There's kind of two bits, if you like. He starts and finishes with some things about what love is. If you look at verse 4 and uh, verse 6 into verse 7, it's patient, kind, Rejoices with the truth, end of verse 6. Love always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres, verse 7. Well, here's something to take away. When you pray for other people, 
wherever they might be, why not take these seven qualities of love and ask God to help you to express them towards that person that you are praying for, whether that's a member of your family, your friends, colleagues, neighbours, whoever it might be, to be like Jesus to them. Seven things which could answer that question and do answer that question. What is love? But then in the middle, in verses 5 and 6, eight qualities which tell us what love is not. Not envious, not boastful, not proud, dishonouring, self-seeking or easily angered. Not keeping a record of wrongs. Not delighting in evil. It's Jesus again, isn't it? Exactly the things that he didn't do. Again, what do we do with verses like this? Well, you could prayerfully give yourself a bit of a a self-audit of your relationships. Ask yourself the question, are there people I'm in danger of being envious of? My colleagues? My brother? Are there people who I might dishonour? My parents? My spouse? Am I easily angered by my children? My neighbour? Or whoever it might be most helpful to apply these to. Pray them through. Lord, help me love like Jesus. It's a great description of love. But thirdly here, we need to remember the context of what Paul is doing. This great reminder of what love looks like is certainly helpful to us in living all parts of our lives as Christians. But primarily they were written to help the Corinthians be wise as they expressed their spiritual gifts that they'd been given. Don't think prophecy is more important than patience, is Paul's message to them. Don't elevate healing over hope. Don't prioritise speaking in languages over living in love. It might feel spiritual, but if I do that, verse 2, I am nothing, because I'm not imitating Christ. His way The way we're called to follow is the way of love. And in these 15 things, we get a window into what that looks like, what love is. So, um, that's the second one, and the biggest one. Love is like Jesus. Thirdly, love is permanent, and also perfect. Looking at the next few verses, from verse 8 onwards. Um, Why, we might ask, why does Paul make such a big thing of the overarching importance of love? when compared with, compared with different kinds of spiritual gifts. What is behind this? The answer is that there is one key way in which love is different to all the gifts, and it's that spiritual gifts, verse 8, will cease. There will be a time when there will be no more prophecies, when tongues will be stilled, knowledge will pass away, at least in the partial, finite sense the Corinthians meant when they spoke about it. Insight and knowledge, words of knowledge. But love never fails. It is permanent because Jesus is permanent and it will outlive all the gifts that people can sometimes get so excited about. And then the other thing about spiritual gifts is that they're not only temporary but also partial. They're not, they're not complete. We know and we prophesy in part, Paul says, Our knowledge is limited now. No word of prophecy is total or complete. And what is limited and partial and incomplete will fade into the background, verse 10, when completeness comes. 
And the example Paul then uses to explain this is, is a, a child growing up in verse 11. It's all very well acting and behaving like a child when you're five, isn't it? Or when you're 12. But when you become an adult, you need to behave like an adult. Paul is saying, look, I have knowledge and languages and prophecy for now, but the day will come when I no longer need them because I will have reached maturity. And verse 12, I will know fully, even as I am fully known. That's the contrast he's making here between permanent, perfect love and temporary, limited gifts. Of course, the question that follows all of this is when? If spiritual gifts like this will cease, and Paul is clear that they will, when will this happen? Now, we could go down a serious rabbit hole here. Um, there's, a, there's a big conversation around this. Not all Christians have taken the same view. I think we just need to note for now, and we can talk about this one more later on if you would like to, that there have been various ideas about this through the history of the church. Some of you will know that well. Some have argued that what Paul says about gifts here was only for the time of the apostles, maybe up to, I don't know, 100 AD or something like that. Um, then they will cease. Others that gifts of things like prophecy, and knowledge were for the time before the New Testament canon of Scripture was completed and closed. Maybe, I don't know, 400 AD. So Paul's call to desire the greater gifts don't apply anymore. Seems to me that can't be right. And the reason is that when Paul talks here about these gifts ceasing and passing away, he says it will be when completeness comes, verse 10, and when we will see face to face, verse 12 which is language which seems most likely to be pointing forward to the day when Jesus returns, to renew all things, to complete all things, when we will see him face to face. On that day, everything that is partial will fade away, like the stars at the dawn of a sunny day. Lastly, though, love is the greatest. And this is verse 13, isn't it? Um, over the next couple of weeks, we will get into chapter 14 uh, and we will get to think about some of the nitty-gritty, some of the questions which have troubled Christians and which we might be seeking answers to. If you like, it's the chapter where the rubber hits the road as Paul gets into the practicalities of exercising spiritual gifts in the church. Um, he has much to say at length, as you will probably know if you've read it, about exercising the gift of languages or tongues and then about the gift of prophecy. I'll come back next week for that. But we need to be clear as we begin that, that Paul's issue is not with these gifts themselves, especially the gift of languages. As he reminds the Corinthians uh, later on in chapter 14, he speaks in tongues, he speaks in languages more than any of them. Now his problem was with the way that they seemed to be using these gifts in ways which were selfish and self-indulgent rather than for the benefit of the whole church without consideration of the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we get to these verses, we'll start to appreciate why Paul spent so long in the middle of all of this talking about love. First, uh, when it comes to those particular gifts he's talking about, uh, in short, love for other, in summary, he says, love for others trumps our right to express ourselves. And that is really the key to all of this. And it's how Paul finishes chapter 13, isn't it? Having written about the things which will cease, prophecy, languages, knowledge, 
he offers three things which will not, famously, faith, hope, and love. Three things which are not temporary and are not limited. We saw back in verse 7, they go together. Love always trusts. That's having faith, isn't it? Love always hopes. The nature of all three will change when Jesus returns. But eternity will be faithful and hopeful as well as loving. But it's no surprise, given all that Paul has said in this amazing chapter, that he still sees one as the most important thing of all. The thing which needs to underpin everything else. And that's where he ends this bit, isn't it? The greatest of these is love. That's how you should see it, he says to the Corinthians, and it's how we should see it too. Jesus-shaped love, the motivation for exercising whatever gifts God has given us. Jesus-shaped love, the driver for our prayers for ourselves and others. Jesus-shaped love for describing the shape of the lives that we are called to live.